Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. Lord, we thank you for your word, the power of it. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come in worship and sit under your teaching of your word. I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to retain the things that we learned today, that it would change our lives, that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. I hope you've been encouraged by the worship today. I want to thank Peyton for reading the scripture. Yeah, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. And today, um, we're continuing in our psalm series, the Psummer Psalms. Somebody really cheesy decided to put that up there, but that's what we're going with. We'll survive. Today, we're in Psalm 96. And um, Psalm 96, uh, I'm going to use it as a template to help us understand all the psalms and actually to understand how we are to interact with the entire Bible. You see, it's about revelation and response. That is, God has revealed to himself in many, many ways who he is, what he's about, what he likes, what he doesn't like, his commands. He's made it very plain to us, you see, what he expects. And what is commanded of us is that we would respond appropriately to his revelation. So I'm calling this revelation and response. I want to show you what I mean. If we break this passage down, we'll go to the next slide here, and, and this is intentionally a small font uh, just because there's so much to cram into it. I want you to understand how much this psalm reveals this principle of God's revelation. What does he do? He saves. He's glorious. He does wonderful, amazing things. He's great. He's the maker of the universe. He's honored. He's majestic. He's strong, beautiful, glorious, full of splendor. He's holy. He reigns. He firmly established the earth. He's righteous and fair judge. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the earth with righteousness, and all people will be judged by his truth. There are 18 things here that indicate revelation from God. He's telling us who he is. He's telling us what he's about. And you'll find this principle in all of Scripture. Every psalm does the same thing. If you took a pen and circled, okay, this is God revealing himself. These are his expectations. This is his character. This is his nature. These are the names of God. He's revealing himself to us again and again and again. And what it calls for is appropriate response on our part. Check this out. This is what we are to do as a result of these 18 things. We are to sing. We are to sing. We are to sing. We are to proclaim his good news. We are to publish his works. Tell everyone about amazing things he's done. He is greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above gods. He is, we are to recognize the Lord. We are to give him glory. We are to bring an offering. We are to come into his presence, into his courts. We are to worship. We are to tremble before him. We are to tell all the nations that he reigns. We are to be glad, to rejoice, to shout his praise, to burst out with joy, to be overcome with praise. That's supposed to be our response to God's revelation. There are 20 things on that list that we should be doing actively. Scripture is not a passive endeavor that we just kind of sit back and say, 
Yeah, I agree with that. That makes sense. I'm, I'm in with that. No, it's, it calls for response. And our worship is supposed to be engaging. Our worship is supposed to be something that takes the truth of God's revelation and it brings our response to bear. And our times of worship should be engaging. We should shout for praise. We should sing together. We should raise our hands. We should bow before him. We should bring our offering. We should do all these things because worship is supposed to be active. It's not a spectator event. Amen? That's what we're about as worshipers, okay? So let's dig into this passage. And like I said, this applies to every part of Scripture. God is always revealing himself on every page of Scripture. He's revealing his expectations, his commands. And we are supposed to submit ourselves to that and respond appropriately, okay? Let's go into the passage. Verse 1. We're to sing a new song to the Lord. There are three of these things, right? We're supposed to sing in three times. Anytime you see three in the Bible in rapid succession, it is significant. The number three means completion or emphasis. And we use this in culture all the time. For a matter of fact, it's three strikes and you're out at the old ball game, right? Imagine if baseball had two strikes and you're out. Or four strikes and you're out. It would radically alter the game. We understand this in culture. Like, I'm going to warn you once, I'm going to warn you twice, and the third time something bad's going to happen, right? We understand this grouping of three, and it's all over Scripture, and so this is important for us. In this case, we're told three times to sing. Yes, we as children of God are commanded to sing. And singing is not just like this optional activity that Christians might try to see if we like it. And that's why at Mountain View Fellowship, we gather together 52 weeks of the year to worship and praise and sing together because God places priority on it. It honors God. It's what we were made to do. And God never commands us to do something that's bad for us. Did you know that? He will never command us to do something that is bad for us. And it turns out singing is actually good for our bodies and for our minds. I want you to check this out. Scientific studies have been done, if we can go to the next slide here, scientific studies have been done that show the benefits of singing, not just music, music has benefits too, but singing, when you open your mouth and sing, it causes mental health to improve, it causes symptoms of depression to decrease, it relieves stress, it improves immune function and cognitive function and respiratory function, it improves memory, it aids in processing grief and loss, and it creates a sense of connectedness and belonging. And you know this to be true, right? This whole idea of being connected when we sing together. If you go to a, a concert and this big famous song comes on, and what does the artist do? They point the microphone to the crowd. And they want you to start singing, right? And all of a sudden in that moment, we're, we're having a big moment together. So, you know, take Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline. We sing, Sweet Caroline. See, you all know exactly what I'm talking about. And we get to do that in worship every week. It's a sense of being together, and it creates a feeling of connectedness. Perfect strangers, all of a sudden, you're like fist bumping each other because we're having a good time. It's what happens when we sing together, and God knows this about us. He knew it about us before any scientist or psychologist started figuring out, hey, this actually is good for us. God already knew that. There are spiritual and physiological benefits to singing, and so God commands us to sing for our good because he's a good God. He loves us, and he knows how we were designed. And because he loves us, he tells us what's good for us. And being disconnected and feeling alone and isolated is bad for us. And that is why the devil loves to lead people into an isolated existence. He wants to get you off by yourself, feeling out of community where hopelessness and depression increase. 
And so we are instructed to sing. And by the way, we sing whether we can actually sing or not, right? Like if you have a microphone in your hand, you probably should know how to sing. It would be good to not hurt everybody's ears. But in the congregation, you just do the best you can. We, make, we call it a joyful noise. Just sing out. Use your voice because there are spiritual things that happen when you praise God with your own voice. And I'm afraid one of the things that happened during the pandemic is that the church lost its voice. It wasn't right what happened there. It wasn't right to deny us to assemble together because we should worship the Lord and we use our voices and there are physiological benefits and societal benefits that come together when we gather to sing. But check this out. We are told to sing a new song. Why are we told to sing a new song? Well, because new creatures sing new songs. If you're saved, you have a reason to sing that you never had before because you've been redeemed. Your sins have been forgiven and you've received the gift of eternal life. That's a reason to sing. You're a new creature. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, they've become a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. And so we have reasons to sing that we didn't have before. Now, we're told to sing three times to the Lord. It's not just singing three times. It's sing to the Lord three times. And that's also significant because the object of our worship is important. We sing to a personal God. We're not just singing to the sky or to the ceiling. We're singing to a person. And there are three persons of the Trinity. So we can address our praise and our worship to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so it's not just singing for singing's sake. It's singing because we, we praise the name of the God whose name is above all names. He's our creator. He's the lover of our souls. And so singing to the Lord is part of our gift and offering back to him, but it's also his gift to us that we can sing together in worship. But it's not only we humans who should sing, it's all of creation that is commanded to sing, because all of creation exists to glorify the Lord. In fact, Jesus said when he walked this earth that if we didn't praise him, what would happen? The rocks would cry out. All of creation is supposed to praise the Lord, and we all have different ways of doing that. But I want you to imagine for a minute, just use your, your sanctified imagination. Think about the day that we are all around the throne of God. Those of us who believed in the Lord Jesus, by the way, you don't get there unless you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus. But the gathering of all the saints who've ever believed in Jesus in heaven, it's billions upon billions of people and angels and even animals will be there together. Just use your imagination. Think about this. Elephants trumpeting the praise of God. Lions roaring. Birds singing. Wolves and dogs howling the praise of God. And what are they saying? Hallelujah. Come on, somebody. Yeah. We'll be here all day. Okay. All of this in great praise to our maker, our creator. It's a beautiful scene. Just try to picture this. This is amazing. All of creation with a thunderous roar. The book of Revelation talks about it like the roaring of mighty ocean waves because there's so many people you can't even distinguish the sound. It's just this great uproar. All in praise to our great God. Verse 2. We're told to praise his name or bless his name. And one of the ways that we can do that is to proclaim this good news that he saves. We proclaim it. We publish it. We preach it. We speak forth the good news that he saves. And so if you're here this morning and you're redeemed and you're saved, you should be happy to tell the whole world. Because Jesus is not a secret to be kept, right? In fact, Jesus said if we're ashamed of him before others, he'll be ashamed of us when he returns. And so our praise and adoration of him should be public. And yes, I do think that you can use social media to tell people about how great God is. That's fine. But how much more in person should we tell each other, look what God did for me. Look at all the great things he's done. 
And, and verse 3 emphasizes this further. Um, because when God does something great for you, when he answers a prayer, for example, you need to tell someone that this happened, right? You tell people what God has done for you, you're actually giving public witness to him, and that honors and pleases God. So let me ask you this. How many of you in recent history have experienced answer to prayer? Just raise your hand right now. If you've experienced an answer to prayer, wow, that's so cool. By just raising your hand right now, you've given public witness to God that he is alive and that he's at work, and that glorifies him. You understand that? He's delighted by this. As Christians, it should be natural for us in any conversation to give testimony of how God is working in our lives. It should just be as natural as breathing. It doesn't matter who I'm talking to. I can quickly turn the conversation to, look what God did for me this past week or whatever. And so verse 4, we praise and worship and sing to God because the Lord is great and thus greatly to be praised. Now, can you imagine how mournful and pathetic it would be to worship a false god? an idol that can't even speak or move and just be told, hey, worship this thing. Try, try getting yourself all excited about a losing team, right? Talk about a losing team. It would be pathetic. Worshiping something that is fake, worshiping something that is a man-made fabrication that we call religion. Boo to that kind of stuff, right? But we worship the true and the living God. He is to be feared and obeyed above all false gods. And so I want to say something today that's not politically correct, but listen, there is still only one way to be saved. There is still only one unchanging truth for all of humanity. There's only one God. There's only one Savior, the Lord Jesus. It is not multiple choice. It is not many paths to God. There is only one narrow way to eternal life. Why? Because we are to have no other gods before him. The gods of the nations are idols. By the way... If you have items in your home like relics and trinkets and things like that, good luck charms, statues, angels, rosaries, or things that you hang from your rearview mirror to keep you safe from the evil road spirits or whatever, I'm telling you this morning, church, throw those things out. Those are false gods. Those are idols. And I could go all day about idolatry in the Old Testament, these shrines that people would have and think that these things are keeping them safe, a a statue of an angel they keep by their bed or whatever to keep them safe. Church, throw those things out. Don't put them in a box and put them in the attic someday for someone to discover. Discard of them. They are a snare to your soul. What do I mean by that? Verse 5. The gods of other nations are idols. That word nations is very significant. I'm going to hit it again in a minute. But basically what it means, nations means those who do not know God. And they are mere idols. People who don't know God have idols. But we who know God destroy the idols that come into our lives. It's one of the main acts of repentance that we are to do when we put our faith in Christ. So we don't hold on to them. What is an idol? An idol is anything that takes first place in your life, anything that takes allegiance from your heart that only God is worthy of. And I could name a hundred idols today because they have many different shapes and forms, belief systems, sentimentality, whatever it is, whatever you're trusting in more than God to keep you safe or to keep, give you good luck or whatever, our God made the heavens. He alone deserves our reverence and our trust and our worship. And so where does that leave things like superstition for a Christian? or horoscopes, or astrology, or Ouija boards, tarot cards, all these things. They are not for Christians. Do you understand? Do not participate in those things. Get rid of them from your life, because God alone keeps us safe. He is our provider. He is our sustainer. It is He, not good luck, 
It's not trinkets. It's not idols. It is God who sustains our lives. We don't pray to saints that are dead or living. We pray to God alone. And so we've got to put away our idols. And by the way, religious idols can be the most subtle and deceptive because they often come with spiritual-sounding phrases or even Bible verses. Look, here's a little angel. It's got a Bible verse, and if you just say this prayer, it'll keep you safe. That's an idol. Get rid of those things. We must reject and remove anything from our lives that takes God place, God's place in our hearts. And so we must reject all forms of superstition. There's no such thing, for example, as good luck or bad luck. Okay? I know that sounds a little heavy this morning, but we've got to get some things right in our relationship with God if we want to see the things that he wants to do in our lives and see him as he really is. Let's go on to the next verse, verse 6. There's more revelation that God wants to give us this morning. Honor and majesty surround him, it says. And so nothing impure, nothing unholy or sinful will ever be allowed in God's presence. Strength and beauty fill his sanctuary, it says. And by the way, that is why unrepentant sinners spend eternity separated from God forever. They're not allowed in the presence of a holy God. Only those who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus and had their sins washed away by trusting in him will be welcomed into God's presence. And so we have to understand that when we see Jesus one day, we're not going to be bringing a suitcase with us of all of our pet sins, right? Nothing, only that which is true and pure and lovely and right will be allowed in God's eternal presence. So some people have this idea that when we get to heaven, man, it's just going to be a big party. It's like Las Vegas all the time. I got to tell you, think again about that. We will be free in heaven to love and obey God perfectly day and night forever and ever. If you're a lover of sin, that would be hell to you. Because in God's holy presence, there'll be nothing but righteousness forever and ever. And so verse 7, we are told to recognize the Lord, to acknowledge him, to give him glory. And there's a plea here. There's an urgency, right? It's listen, nations. Listen, you arrogant national leaders. Listen, people of planet Earth. Give God the glory he is due. I'm going to come back and hit that word nations again right now. You're going to see the word nations in the book of Psalms over 100 times, five times in this psalm alone. It's a mega theme in the book of Psalms. And what it means is that every people group on earth who do not worship the true and living God. So let me break this down for you. There are roughly 200 countries on planet earth right now. And that means that there are 200 countries, nations, who do not obey God's commands and are therefore in need of national repentance, okay? Because there's actually no nation on earth that today claims Jesus Christ as king at the national level. There's not even one nation on earth that does that. Now, at the time the Psalms were written, there was one nation that worshipped the true and living God. That was Israel. But those days are long in the rearview mirror. And today, all nations, including Israel are actively rebelling against God and angering him with their anti-God laws as they rush headlong into moral decay. A few weeks ago when Pastor Mike started this series, he preached Psalm 2, and you go back and read that. Understand what God is going to do to the nations that have rejected the Lord Jesus as, in his rightful place as king. So verse 8, we are those of us who know and love God, we are to give God the glory he deserves. And one of the ways we do this is by bringing our offering and coming into his courts. That's the assembling together. We're supposed to do that. We also come and bring our offerings before him. Offering is part of worship. 
Now, at MVF, we don't take up an offering per se, but it's understood that it's part of our worship. Um, it means financial faithfulness to God. And the way that we give to God is by giving to the local church because that's how God has set it up. And so we gather for worship. We come into his courts as the body of Christ every week, and we come to pour out our praise and our thanksgiving to hear from his word. And we need to be, remember to be generous and faithful in our giving out of what God has provided us for. Because when we come and gather in God's presence, it's actually our entire lives that are to be laid before the king. And of course, that's going to include our pocketbook, right? Let me put it this way. Either Jesus is Lord of your life, he's Lord of everything, or he's not Lord at all. You can't a la carte God in loving him. It's not like I'm going to pick to obey God in this area and this area, but I'm going to keep a few things for myself over here that I'm just going to do my own way. Listen, when it, can we come to Christ, this is the image of baptism. Watch this. When we go into the water, it is the symbol of our death to all that held us in chains before we knew Christ. And when we come up out of that water, we are changed forever. We have a new Lord, a new course for our lives, a new priority and we lay our lives before the king, and so we give him everything. Either he's Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And so verse 9, what that means is that we worship the Lord in his majesty. He is the great king. The whole earth ought to tremble and order their lives before him. By the way, God is not our buddy-buddy. He's not our chum, okay? He's our friend, yes, but we must not take such a casual approach to God. He is to be respected and revered more than any person on earth because he holds our lives and our breath in his hands, okay? And he holds our eternal destiny in his hands. And one day we're going to give an account to him for how we have lived down here. And that's the meaning of the fear of the Lord. It means living our lives constantly mindful that one day we will be judged for our actions, whether they were good or evil. That's what the fear of the Lord means. I'm always remembering, I'm going to give an account for how I live and the decisions I'm making right now. And by the way, that's why the world we live in is in so much trouble. Because a long list of national leaders in every nation have stubbornly refused to express appropriate humility toward God. They will not fear him. They do not tremble before him. They do not lead their nations in obeying God's commands, right? In fact, they openly mock the very idea that they would ever stand before God to be judged. What our nations need more than anything else is a leader who truly seeks God. I mean, can you imagine what a change we would see in our world if our national leaders would get on their knees on public television and instead of seeking re-election and promoting their record they would get on their knees and begin confessing their own sins and the sins of their nation and ask God to forgive the nation and heal the nation. Can you imagine what a beautiful scene that would be and what kind of thing that might sweep over the land if someone would ever do that? You see, if a national leader truly feared God, they would never say the foolish and blasphemous things that they do on national television nor sign laws into being that go actually against God's commands. And the worst thing of all is when governors and presidents sign things into law by twisting God's word to try to support the very sins that they sign into law. This is a horrible thing. And so verse 10 in this psalm, tell all the nations, including starting with our own nation, tell the leaders of our nations that the Lord reigns. 
Amen? All right, let me have a little fun with this. So I'm going to just assume, because probably President Biden is now watching our, our service live on the live stream, right? Probably Governor Polis is watching live stream. Good morning, gentlemen. Sirs, we respect you. We honor you as the Lord instructs us to. But I have to tell you, the Lord reigns. Not only that, though. You are about to stand before the king and judge of the universe and give an account for how you've led this nation. You're about to give an account for how you've directed people away from God instead of turning people back toward God. You will give an account one day for that. And my friends, unless there is radical and swift repentance, that day is not going to go well for them. This verse says that the earth stands firm and cannot be shaken. What that means is that God is sovereign and nothing escapes his notice. And he's going to use even the current cast of sinful and God-hating G7 leaders on this planet to accomplish his purposes for the earth. God's purposes cannot be stopped. He cannot be thwarted. The Lord reigns. Can I just add one thing to this? Global warming will indeed destroy the earth one day. Just not the kind of global warming that everybody's worried about, right? King Jesus will judge all peoples. He will judge all nations fairly with justice. Justice. Do we even know the meaning of that word anymore? What is justice? Who gets to decide? Who on earth is even qualified to tell us what justice is since we live in a day and age when people go around calling good things evil and they call evil things good? But when Christ returns, he will be the judge, and every nation, all of their leaders, will fall flat on their faces before him, and they will prepare to stand trial, and it's not going to be pretty. Verse 11. We're once again brought into this beautiful worship scene, the seas and everything in them rejoicing. Why? Because when the justice of King Jesus comes back, when he returns, that is, it's going to be good for all of creation. How is this going to work when Jesus returns? No more pollution. No more greed-driven exploitation of natural resources. The earth, the oceans, every living creature shouting his praise. Verse 12. The fields and the crops will burst out with joy. Why? Because when Jesus comes again and remakes the earth, the fertility of the fields will cause crops to burst with abundance. There will never be any more drought There'll never be any more poverty, no more scarcity. There'll never be weeds or thorns choking out the crops. Goat heads gone forever. Amen. No more spraying chemicals on the fields. They will once again be blessed as they glorify God with a super abundance of food. Yes, even the fields will burst with joy and the trees in the forest will sing with joy. That's what's going to happen when Messiah comes. And that is what is in view in this psalm and in the entire book of Psalms. I need you to understand this. The day when Jesus Christ returns to the earth, he is the descendant of King David. That's so important to understand as you read the Psalms. It's all about this promised heir to the throne who will come. And we know that's Jesus. He's going to come and he's going to claim his rightful throne on a beautified and perfected and healed earth forever. I want you to check this out. The last verse of the psalm goes like this. Psalm 96, 13 says, For he is coming. Who? It's going to be King Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of David. He's coming and he's going to judge the earth. He will judge the world with justice and the nations with his truth. 
Are you discouraged and angered sometimes when you read the headlines of, of the way the world's going, the way our nation's going? If you love truth and justice, you probably should be upset because it so poorly aligns with thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Like the, what's happening in the world so poorly aligns with that. It should upset us, but we need to take solace in this. One day, there will finally be lasting truth and justice on this earth, and it will prevail everywhere. The entire earth will be judged by God's truth, not my truth, not your truth, not the president's truth. It will be judged by God's truth. There will be no more deception on that day. There will be no more dark corners, no human trafficking, no more corruption, no perversion of justice, no more forced agenda being thrown at us by the, by the uh, government and by the media. There will be no more liars prospering with impunity. You see, Jesus is going to come and he's going to cut them all to the ground. His truth and perfect justice will prevail, the Bible says, from sea to sea. What a glorious day that will be. We ought to take comfort in knowing that day is coming. And we might even see it in our lifetime. Hallelujah. But what about you today? Have you responded to Jesus appropriately? Have you responded to God? Think about all the things we've read today that God has shown us about himself. Revelation of who he is. Have you responded appropriately to that? That's what the Psalms are all about. It's about the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. It's all prophetic, you see. And the kingdom of God started in seed form when Jesus walked the earth the first time. 2,000 years ago, when he came to this earth, what did he come to do? He came to save us from our sins. That was his mission. It wasn't to set up a literal kingdom at that time. But the promise of a literal kingdom still stands, and it's future to where we are right now. Jesus is coming again. And so it's all about your response. It's about your relationship with God this morning. And for a relationship with God to happen, we must first respond to God's greatest revelation of all, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so the greatest revelation we have of God is in the person of the Lord Jesus, and we must respond to him appropriately. God is calling everyone in this room today to a response. In the Psalms, it says, he summons each generation. You've been summoned this morning to come to Jesus, to respond appropriately to what he's revealed to you. For some of you, that means repentance of some things that are not right in your life. It means changing the direction that you've been going. Maybe you are a Christian, but maybe you're not living it out. Maybe there's some idols in your life that need to be taken out, whether literal or figurative, right? But for some in this room, you've never taken the first step of responding to the Lord Jesus. And maybe you're feeling some, some heaviness on your heart right now, like there's, there's somebody pushing on your heart. That's not me. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you, telling you, today is a day of action. Today is a day something needs to change in your life. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. And so we're going to just take a moment to reflect. And, and some of you need to do some business with God this morning. So I'm just going to invite you to bow your head right where we are right now. Take a moment. If you're a Christian, let's get things right in our lives with God right now. Let's confess our sins, but let's also pray because the gospel is going to go forth right now. Maybe you're here today and you realize that you have fallen short of God's expectations for your life. We know what God requires of us, how we're supposed to live, but we haven't done it. 
Every one of us in this room, the Bible says, is a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We have failed to live up to the purpose for which God created us in the first place. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. What we deserve for having violated God's commands is eternal separation in a terrible place called the lake of fire for all eternity. That's what God has decreed. But he doesn't leave us in that hopeless situation. You see, 2,000 years ago, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross. And what happened at that cross is that the punishment for my sin and your sin was laid on Jesus' shoulders, and he died the death that we should have died. And the gospel is just this. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he loves sinners, and he paid the price for your sins. And if you believe on him, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this morning, if you want to pray to God, if this is your moment, this is the time you know God is speaking to you, you need to make a decision. You can pray to God something very simple, just like this. It's so simple, even a child can do it. God, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. Just tell him in your own words. I recognize that my life has been displeasing to you. And I'm in need of a Savior this morning. I'm in need of forgiveness. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. Will you come and save me? My heart is open. I'm ready. I need you. That's all it takes, folks. It's a matter of the heart. Is your heart open? Are you ready to receive what Jesus has for you? It's that simple. But you know, the good news goes further because Jesus died on the cross and he went into the grave for three days, but he didn't stay there. The Bible says on the third day he rose from the grave and he lives forevermore. And the Bible says when you believe in the resurrection, you will receive the gift of eternal life. And so the second part of your prayer, if you're praying that prayer this morning, is simply to say, God, I believe that Jesus went into that grave, but he didn't stay there. I believe he rose from the grave. And because of that, I know I will also have eternal life. That is the good news that we preach here. I wonder if this morning any of you have made that decision for the first time. You've said, I recognize that I'm a sinner. I need Jesus to save me, and I'm making that step today. I'm going to step out in faith and ask Jesus to forgive my sins, and I'm going to receive forgiveness, and I'm going to receive the gift of eternal life. Does anybody make that decision this morning? Would you just raise your hand where you are? Just let me see your hand. For the first time, you've recognized your need of a Savior. Amen. Amen. God is so good. He is so great. If you made that decision this morning, would you please come and tell me after the service? Just come find me. I'll hang out down here. We'd love to pray with you. love to talk to you about the most important decision you will ever make in your whole life. But for the rest of us, it's time to worship. It's time to respond to the greatness of our God, to his gospel, to his glory, to his majesty. And so we're going to raise our voices, church. We're going to raise our hands. We're going to give him the glory he deserves. Come on, let's stand to our feet today. How great is our God.